This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human, and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Eric Wynne, author of the novel Things We Lost to the Water. Fiction was a way to kind of access that memory, even though that memory might not be a real memory, it might not be factual, but I think through writing fiction gave me a way to get insight into these kind of characters who are kind of like my own parents. We'll be back with Eric Wynn after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show 
I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Eric Wynn, author of the novel Things We Lost to the Water. Wynn earned his MFA in creative writing from McNeese State University in Louisiana. He has been awarded fellowships from Lambda Literary, Voices of Our Nation, and the Tin House Writers Workshop. He is the editor-in-chief of Diacritics and lives in Washington, D.C. His novel Things We Lost to the Water tells the story of an immigrant Vietnamese family, a mother and two sons, who flee their country just after the war. They settle in New Orleans, and Huang, the mother, has two young sons, no job, no home, and is worried about her husband who stayed behind in Vietnam. The novel covers more than two decades of the family's life in America as they are haunted by the shadow of the one who stayed behind while trying to adapt to life in America. The mother eventually finds a boyfriend and better and better jobs. The oldest son is straddling two cultures and trying to figure out where he fits in. And the youngest son, who was born in the United States, has changed his name and is embracing his sexual identity and intellectual pursuits. We began the discussion with Eric Wynn discussing how he'd been thinking of writing this story for a very long time and how it relates to his own personal history. For me, this was a book that I thought about writing for a very long time. I think it started because I, I always wanted to know more about my family's history, but my parents didn't really talk about their own journey to the U.S., um, even though we probed them a lot about these that their story um, over the years, they always kind of shut it down, changed topics. Um, but at the same time, that kind of left me feel like there's a part of me missing. So I felt fiction was a way to kind of access that memory, even though that memory might not be a real memory, it might not be factual. But I think through writing fiction gave me a way to get insight into these kind of characters who are kind of like my own parents. Did writing this, when you got to the research level or putting it on the page or actually now that it's out, cause your parents to tell you more than they ever had before? Or was it the same? It's pretty much the, the same. Um I guess my parents have always been really quiet people to begin with. Um, I mean, like growing up, it's like we just had our own bubble uh, in our house, mostly because we didn't live around a lot of other Vietnamese people. Maybe uh, there was like a Vietnamese family down the street around the corner, but my family 
kind of interact with them. I'm not sure why. It just might be the private people. I think that's my conclusion. And I haven't really learned more about their stories. But I think through writing this book, I came to a better understanding of why people might not want to share their story. It could be trauma. Telling a story of trauma can bring about that trauma again. Or it's something they don't want to think about for whatever reason. Like growing up, my parents kind of almost discounted the past and told us to like focus on the future, get good grades, get good jobs, um, build your future. So I felt like a mixture of like, those two things, uh, parents who are rather private in the first place, and also this focus on the future really made them kind of not share their past. And I think going through the motions of writing these characters, especially the mother character, made me understand more where they came from. Are you glad now that they didn't talk about that because you got this book? I guess there's always a part of me that like wants to know like what actually happened. Like how was the refugee camp like? Um, how did they feel flying to the U.S., for example? But I, I think I, I'm in a good place like with my personal identity. I feel comfortable with the story I wrote. I, I feel like it's almost like catharsis writing the story um, in a way like I, I'm okay with not knowing that full story. And I think that's a good way to use fiction. Fiction is a way to imagine other people. And I think through imagining these characters, they're kind of analogs to my own family. I felt that catharsis that that I can kind of let go of these questions I have and feel at peace with perhaps not knowing the the hard truth answer. Do you think that writing is by nature cathartic, or do you think that catharsis generally plays a role in it? And I'm curious, based on your answer, too, if you are writing something new and if it's different, if it's a different experience for you, if it's less personal. I think, well, I think the first book, Things We Lost to the Water, is probably the most personal book I can write. And it was, like I said, really cathartic um, just because it was something that was really close to me. Um, and like writing can't be cathartic. Uh, like you can listen to other writers and say like, that this was a way to lift something off my shoulders uh, for me to learn more about myself and whatever is around me. Um, so there's that case, but I think I almost feel like going forward, I like since this is the most personal project I can do, anything else can really be almost just fun or me um, examining my, my own personal artistic side. Um, I, I don't think like every work that I do should be cathartic. Um, I mean, sometimes writing is fun. I, I think that's really why I came to writing and fiction in the first place was because it was fun. Like my first like fiction that I wrote like in middle school was like all like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like fan fiction. And that was fun. And I think that's that's why I became a writer in the first place. It wasn't to kind of answer these questions about my identity I think it's fun so I think going forward I mean like I have serious books but I think they're going to be fun at least the writing process 
Um, so I think going forward, it will be less personal. Um, and I'm okay with that. I feel like that gives me kind of freedom as an artist to to like move on from this really personal story to explore other parts of humanity, really. What conversations have you had with your family about this book once they read it? Well, my family hasn't read it yet. At least my parents, they have really, they, they, I mean, they speak English. That's how they go about their daily lives outside of the home. But reading is more of a challenge for them. Um, so they haven't read like the, um, I guess the, the full novel. Like there are like, I've done like interviews that have been translated into Vietnamese. So they know that. Uh, but otherwise, like, I feel like, I mean, they're proud of me in a way, but like, they, they, I'm not a doctor yet. I'm not a lawyer. So like that, that's like their dream job for me. And for them, it's like good, but not good enough, I feel. So like that's, I feel like as a middle child, like I feel like that's something I have to live with is that they're, they're going to compare me to like, my, my brothers and sisters who are like both scientists and I'm like the oddball out there. But I, I think they're happy with what I accomplished, or at least I, I really hope that they are. Let's talk a little bit about the family. So we have a family of three. They arrive in New Orleans in 1979 and their names are Huang and she is the mother. She has a son, Dum. So we have Hong and Tun, and she's pregnant at the time with a son who is Bin, but he becomes Ben. Because he was born in America, he just has a different relationship with the country because he doesn't have any memories, and the other two do. So they leave Vietnam in 1979, and she is happily married, and but the husband doesn't go. And we're not sure if when the boat was leaving, if he slipped out of her hands and he couldn't jump on, but they go to America and she's very, he's, he's dominates the book in a way as this sort of live ghost figure that she is always telling her sons, you know, what would your father think if he saw you behaving this way? She's just writing to him and sending him tape cassettes for the day he comes. And we find out partway through that he's not going to come. You switch points of view between the mother and the two sons about their experience in New Orleans. And I think it's it starts with them being very alienated and seeing the country for the first time and then slowly sort of getting it, I guess, like understanding it more. And I asked you in the beginning if you if you had been thinking about this for a long time, because I felt like you knew these characters so well and so I wanted to ask you about your experience of just getting to know them in the writing. Yeah, so I, I guess the first drafts when I was creating these characters, I, I didn't really know much about them. I, I knew them more as like archetypes, like the mother archetype, um, the son, and the younger son. Um, so I had that in mind in writing like the first drafts, and it was really in revision that you get to know these characters um, and how they relate to their environment, how they interact with each other. And I think having that, that family structure, having chapters that kind of alternate between uh, the characters, I, I felt that was really important for me to get to know 
each of the character because I feel like to know someone, you don't ask them because they're going to give you a really biased answer is to know someone. The best way, I think, is to ask around how people think about them or how their interactions with that person is. So I think that that structure of the novel like really helped me really understand um, not only how these characters see themselves, but how others see them and their motivations both internally and how other people might uh, see, interpret their actions. So I think that that structure was really important. So from there, I kind of got to know the characters a little bit more, um, what they would do, what they would not do, what their reaction would be. I think one thing that really helped me was just writing basically character sketches of like what one character would do throughout the day and how people would react to them on the streets, for example. And those like had no, never made it to the final. It was most, I had really no intention for them to be in the final in the first place. They were just there for me to better understand them. Because um, I think without understanding them, I, I can't really write about them truthfully in what would become the the final novel. So it was, I guess, imagining them beyond the manuscript, beyond the story that I want to tell, that I was able to say, hey, this character would be, would have a soft side, for example, uh, despite having this, this machoism that he kind of shows people, which is this, the case for the first son, um, or through writing a scene that doesn't take place in the book, I come to know that a character has this sexuality that he, he trying to get a hold of, which is the case for like Ben, the last child. So I think getting to those characters was a mixture of having them reflected on each other among the chapters that we see, uh, but also that that step of writing in the background of stuff that you as a writer know that no one's going to ever see, but which is so important for you as a writer to know who your character is. Like I would say like when the camera is not on. I wanted to ask you if you thought about voice at all and how you might define what voice is. And when you're writing three different characters, I mean, obviously they are already different. They're different ages. They um, have had different life experiences. You know, you have a male and a female, you have a heterosexuals and homosexuals. So they're already different, but I'm wondering how you would define voice and how you thought about making that particular to each character because you were telling it from the point of view of, of three characters. Yeah. I think voice kind of almost comes naturally once you get to know more of the characters, Partly because like the demographics that they have, the generational demographics in the book, for example, um, the mother, for example, would her voice would be really rooted in the country that she grew up in and that she lost. Um, and she comes to the U.S. kind of more disoriented. So her voice is kind of filtered through an old life and then this new kind of shadow life um, and how she views stuff compared to the youngest son, Ben, who... His voice is really, I would say, like Americanized. He, he only knew America. He kind of picks up the slang in the way, um, in the way that you kind of talk. Like I imagine him having almost kind of a Southern twang 
there's another, like another minor character that, like I said, like she does have a southern twang. Um, so like that voice of how they would talk in real life, I think that really shows, I guess, character, but also demographic, what is realistic for a person to kind of how they absorb uh, the language around them and how they, they interpret that and how they are able to kind of replicate that. And to what degree is that, like, I guess, accurate to to the people surrounding them and how accurate it, it is to their ability to say what they want to say in the most accurate way possible. So I think for me, it was starting on where these characters came from and how their experiences kind of affect them, not only as people, but also like as people who use language. So I was wondering if you could read a little section in the very beginning of the book. And what has happened here is Juan, the mother, is it's kind of like her first days in the country. And she knows very little English. You know, basically she knows like, hello, I'm sorry, thank you. And she's wandering around um, New Orleans with her son, who's about five. And you are really expressing what it feels like, like even on this visceral level to witness this new country for the first time and not know what's going on. And she's just gone to a restaurant, but she doesn't really know what it is exactly. And the woman in the restaurant is coming out and saying, do you want something to eat? And she's saying, eat. So before the girl could say anything else, Hoon turned around and walked away with a steady stride. She didn't know what had just happened, but she felt in the pit of her stomach that she had done something wrong. The last thing she saw on the girl's face was a grimace. She was being told she was sure that she had done something rude against the country's laws. They would arrest her. They would arrest a woman and her children for not knowing the rules. Would they even let her stay because she was arrested? What would happen to them all then? They crossed the street and took another corner. She walked faster. Maya, what's wrong? Dung asked. He looked back toward where they had come from. Don't look back, said Hung. She pushed the stroller and led Dung away. Don't look. Don't you look. Suddenly, she noticed all around her people were talking. There were couples talking, groups talking, children talking. A woman held a dog in her arms, and she, too, was talking to that small animal. Yet the words they were saying didn't make any sense. She repeated the words she knew in her head, a chaotic mantra of foreign sounds that contorted her mouth comically, strangely, like a puppet's. Yes, no, thank you, please, yes, no, sorry, hello, goodbye, no, sorry. The important part was to keep moving. She knew that much. She saw a fenced-in area in in an empty park across the street. Without looking, she ran toward it. But before she reached the gate, a man with beads around his neck and oversized sunglasses bumped into her. She could smell the alcohol in him. All of a sudden, the whole city smelled of alcohol, and everything everywhere was drinking and smiling and laughing. What was wrong with these people? What was wrong with this place? Uh, I wanted you to read that because it was such a visceral 
experience as a reader to really, I felt like I was embodying Huang and that I felt what she felt like looking at this country with new eyes. And I wanted to ask you about writing that paragraph. That's, it seems really important, you know, when you're writing about someone coming to a country for the first time. So I'm curious about that. And I'm also interested because you were born in this country, if you feel like you've spent your life in some ways looking at the country through a dual lens, which is one of of your parents and seeing it through their eyes as well as yours. I almost kind of think like in this kind of dual language, like Vietnamese and English sometimes like my thoughts would be in Vietnamese, and then like I, I would have to somewhere along the way I have to translate that into English. And like if I'm talking to uh, my parents or like, other Vietnamese people, like somehow like it's an English in my head, and like I have to translate it. Or other times, just comes out all naturally. So like there's some brain science going there that I'm not sure of. So I think like having grown up in like that bilingual. Um, environment kind of helped me see I guess through the way language works and I guess the power of language I I feel like in this passage I I kind of in a way flipped the script when you see like in other English language novels like the the non-English words are like italicized and meanings are explained I kind of wanted to flip it here and the English words are rather foreign words that she couldn't understand like there's one part that she she tries to say please she doesn't know what please mean and in her mind she asking that is it does it mean lam ung lam ung means please in vietnamese so there's i guess that that maneuvering between the languages that has to be done that i i tried to capture in especially these first pages when she's new because i feel like that that's probably the most natural way to encounter a different language um like like outside of the Vietnamese language realm like if I go to a different country like France for example and I know a little bit of French like if someone tells me a word that I should know like in the back of my mind I'm asking myself does that does that mean please does that mean thank you it takes me like that five seconds that has like the awkward silence between you and whoever you're speaking to kind of get that word right or become more confident. So I, I feel like living in that bilingual space, like my characters, that there's like that continual like kind of thinking about language and how to translate and also what it means. Like I feel like that is a process I still go through, like especially with American idioms, like like I, I don't understand American idiom, idioms unless like someone explains it to me because otherwise like really they, they, they don't make sense if you actually think about it. So I guess that's the world I live in. And I felt that it was just natural to kind of write that down or try to kind of copy it in this book. Yeah. So you, you were just talking about the language and being bilingual and I am not in any way trying to separate um, the culture from the language because I think they're very tied together. Um, 
but I am curious about the the cultural aspects too that you see and that you wrote into this about her seeing the alcohol or being afraid of being arrested in addition to language seems to have, you know, so, some really strong cultural elements. And for you to have grown up with parents who might have been seeing the world a little differently than you because you were born here and at home, you would probably be very steeped in Vietnamese culture, but when you went to school and had these other things. So I'm, I'm also curious about that experience of your life be, beyond the language, just maybe the cultural aspect. At least for me growing up, like there, there was that split like the language split that I just talked about between cultures, like there's that culture inside the house where you're with, I was with my Vietnamese family compared to going outside where I kind of, there was a new set of rules uh, of being with my peers who were really not Asians at all, really. Um, so like there, there are like norms, like in the, in the Vietnamese household, you, respect your parents, you ask permission for doing specific stuff. Um, and if they come back to you, their their word is kind of and all. We're taught to respect our elders and know that our elders have our best interests in mind because it's a family unit. Why else would you have a family unit if not to trust each other? Um, compared to outside, especially among my peers who were, I guess, more talkative is kind of, I mean, like almost kind of more democratic in a way. Like if you and your friends are talking, like, where do you want to go eat? Um, someone might say pizza, someone might say burgers, and you kind of take that all into consideration and you kind of make like a group decision compared to like in my household tonight, we're going to eat fish tomorrow. We're going to eat soup. So like you didn't have a choice there. And it was always, Vietnamese food uh, compared to the outside world where there's all kinds of food because it's America. There's a lot of different types of food. But I guess that's one way that I had to like balance between the culture that I was living every day outside the world, especially as I grew up and spent less time at home as a teenager, just going out compared to what was instilled in me like as a younger person that since I was young and it was instilled then I kind of carry with me so I feel like there's a lot of negotiation between what culture what values like I kind of see in myself and I think that's I want to say like that's something that is not permanent like going through life you balance these two cultures and I think like that's like for one character in particular, I'm thinking Dom, this the first son. He is trying to navigate. Does he want to be more Vietnamese than American? Does he want to preserve that? Or does he want to find himself in this New Orleans culture that he he's lived most of his life in? I, I think it's always a balancing act between these cultures. So like you said bilingual, maybe there's also like bicultural, um, and that negotiation between not only two languages, but also two culture, two types of practices, two types of really being in the world. And were you really conscious of that, of, of embedding that in the story? I think to a particular point, I think particularly, like, like I said, like the, the, the first one, I think 
the way I knew him was like this, this back and forth between like what he wants to do compared to I felt like the mother character, she is really trying to hold on to those traditions, especially as she mentions her husband, their father, compared to the youngest, Ben, who is kind of, I would say like Americanized in a way. He's He doesn't really speak Vietnamese. Like I made an effort to kind of almost get rid of any Vietnamese when he's talking because he, that's, he doesn't see that as his language. Um, and then he also has a better way of moving into in the world of like academia, which is English language. So I think two of the characters kind of represent the opposite ends of that bicultural, bilingual spectrum. But then we have this one character who is kind of moving back and forth. And I think that's that kind of represents like the struggles of kind of each generation in a way. We have the generation who came as adults. We have the generation who is grew up some of their lives in Vietnam and then come here and kind of have to negotiate between old life, new life, and then we have a generation who is sees himself as American and that that Asian American identity is kind of in the background. One of the things that you also do in the book when when the kids are young and the mom starts going to work, they move into a place in New Orleans. It's east of the city called Versailles and it's kind of an apartment complex straight on the bayou um, for these Vietnamese refugees. And when they go to work, the children go to an older woman, an older Vietnamese woman's house. And at this time, like Dun is quite young and there's an older girl there who kind of taunts him. And I think one of the worst things that you can be called in this little culture that these preschoolers make is an American. And so you're kind of turning the sense of otherness um, to that the Americans are the other. And they play this game kind of where it's like, and it's it harkens strongly to the war and the things that her parents have told her about Americans. And when she calls someone an American or she has a scene when she's like American lover, American lover, American lover, it's like swearing or or calling someone such a horrific name. And I just wanted to ask you about this scene. Yeah, I think part of it was kind of flipping the script. Um, like I said, like I kind of flipped the script with language where like the mother's kind of, she's experiencing English as a foreign language. I think likewise with this community, um, I kind of flipped the script where Asian Americans usually in America are seen as the other, but I think having this community to work with as, I guess, the character as a setting, that gave me a way to kind of invert that that narrative, that, that stereotype of who is other. So it's, since everyone in the community is Vietnamese, of course the other would be anyone non-Vietnamese, and easily it's the American and the American represents that that other a lot to like people who come from places who have been colonized. Uh, I mean, like colonization, usually Europeans came to places where there are people of color. 
of course, there'll be less of the Europeans, more of the native population. So I felt like, I don't think like the way we teach history, that is not really a framework that we work with. We see it as more as these Europeans coming to this place to exploit it, uh, but less of a conversation piece is how these people, these Europeans were outsiders. So I think that kind of having this community that is all really just Vietnamese people and having the, the idea that there's outsiders around kind of makes it, I guess, a stronger community in a way, but also I, I feel like almost like a weird place, a liminal place, because like how, like if they leave that community, it's not like it, they become the outsiders. So like I feel it's kind of complex and I feel like it's empowering in a way for this community to do that, but then not really because it doesn't change anything on the outside. They are still kind of powerless in a way outside because they're seen as outsiders. So I guess writing that scene, I was trying to kind of play with who's an insider, who's an outsider, when does it matter, and how can how does that change? So as the kids grow up and have, you know, two different experiences because Dun, he's not going to go to college. He sort of flirts with being in a gang, I think more because he's looking for belonging, like not because he's a bad kid. And can you talk a little bit about his trajectory as a character? I think his character, the part of the novel, I guess I was trying to show the most is that he's kind of lost he doesn't know where he belongs i feel like that way he's kind of like his mother especially in the early chapters when she's trying to figure out life here like there's a chapter where she goes out to the bars with her friend who is dating american and she feels like it's the american thing to do so she does it and i think that's where dom is kind of like his mother he's kind of trying to figure out where he's where he belongs. So like his first entry into American culture is like with a bully at school. So he sees that as something that maybe he doesn't belong there. So the gang, like you said, offers him a place to belong. But then I guess his core, there's there's like a moral core there either from something he just developed or perhaps from the lessons he learned from his father who's no longer there. Um, that makes him think that maybe this is not the best place for him. So I think for most of the novel is, is him trying to figure out, do I belong here? Do I belong there? And I think by the end of the novel, he kind of goes his own way. There's no group that he hangs out with. He's kind of, I wouldn't say a, a loner. I, I feel like he matures to a point that he doesn't need a group to belong with. All he needs is a place to stay and maybe someone to love. And I think at the end, that I like his journey. I think his journey is almost the most relatable just to anyone, even if you are inside a society where you, you're part of the majority. I think he kind of symbolizes that experimentation of finding out who you are and at the end of it, find, finding who you are is not a group of people, but it's, it's always been within yourself. 
And Ben, the youngest son, like you really express with Dun, his, I mean, he's really straddling both worlds because he remembers Vietnam, although he was very young when he left. And he, so I think he struggles more, whereas Ben is searching for something in a different way. I think he's searching for belonging. He's curious about religion. He is a very loyal friend. And he discovers in high school that he's gay. And that's pretty revelatory for him. And he um, he faces from someone who was his best friend growing up, who's from the Caribbean, um, that moment of of prejudice of because he's gay, but he doesn't face it really from his family. Um, but it, it sort of is a great, I mean, I'm curious about that in his character, but it also helps to create him as more of an individual on his own journey because he has that difference from his family too. So I wanted to ask you about his identity. I think his identity is kind of, there's multiple identity. I feel like, for him more than like other characters, like I imagine this character trying to like different suits to see like what fits the best. And I, I he was interested in religion at one point, then um his sexuality, then his time as like this academic who whose research like doesn't really matter to anyone outside of his department. So I, I feel like he's the kind of character who is find his own identity in a very different way from like his brother, for example. And I, I think he, that almost chameleon-like um, kind of characteristic kind of helps him kind of differentiate, differ himself from the rest of his family who are kind of tied up into the, these questions of how do I honor the past while also stating the present. I feel like for him in particular, like the past is still there, but he's like, moving full speed forward and almost he's like the most resilient of the bunch because i feel like even after some rejections like he just keeps on going um yeah i think like i, I could have written like a scene where he comes out to his family but i feel like i guess that i guess that wouldn't add to his character really because he's such in my mind an independent character that whatever anyone says he's like whatever, I'll just move on the way he did move on after his, his his little fight of discrimination with his best friends. His best friend kind of moves on. He doesn't, doesn't really mention her again. So I think he's a strong character that I feel like in a way like he became more rough than I intended him to be, uh, which I guess is fine. It's, it's his character, which I think makes sense. And Huang, the mother, she is haunted really by this ghost of of her husband who didn't make it and is obsessed with sending letters and very anti-religion, very anti-communism because she's a very independent thinker and she sees what communism did to her country. And she ends up finding a boyfriend and working her way up to better jobs, but also I think is really suffering in a really quiet way yeah i think just because like well she's alone she she has like that loss of not only a country but someone really close to her so i think naturally she would struggle in her own way and of course like she's the only one in her family that would 
can't understand and she really doesn't have any confidence. Like I know like one of the, her friend, the the like the lady who lives in the apartment below her, there's a friendship there, but like there is that disconnect. Like I, I remember making the friend like kind of religious and that friend telling her to, to pray. And that doesn't match with Hulun's experience of what religion is, what ideology is. So there is a loneliness to her that I don't think is ever really resolved um, compared to like her sons. And even if she has like that boyfriend character, he's like, I feel like he's just kind of there. Like I, I wrote him in because I felt like she needed to be happy in a way. I, I feel like without some happiness, her story really couldn't go anywhere. But I feel like at the same time, there's not that connection between her and then her boyfriend. There's more of practicality of companionship uh, with her. So I think even if she finds herself surrounded, I think there's an intense loneliness to her that is kind of born out of trauma. And I, I guess I don't know what to say about that, but I feel like realistically, like these things happen. I feel like a lot of refugee stories are like these stories that you lose everything and you build everything up again, but sometimes you lose everything, you kind of stay in one place. You kind of move up, but not too up. You don't find this successful dream of being like the richest person or regaining your status that you had in your old country. So I think, well, I hope that I gave her story and her character kind of this realism, this almost critique of that story of um, the American refugee as someone who kind of pulled themselves up by the boot, bootstraps and find success. She doesn't really find success almost. She, I mean, she has a nail business, but that can only go so far. She's like cleaning the barf that lands in front of her her shop every day. Um, so I think she does find success, but it's like there's always that loneliness, that loss that kind of inhabits her that doesn't ever really go away. I don't think so. And I wanted to talk about New Orleans and and the water. You know, it's uh, things we lost to the water. You start with the boat ride from Vietnam and you end with Katrina um and and New Orleans is is almost like a character in itself. Yeah, I think New Orleans is a perfect setting for particularly like for a Vietnamese American novel. I feel like there's so much in common between like the Gulf culture of Louisiana and New Orleans in particular, and then the Gulf culture, the shore culture of Vietnam. I mean, like both areas, like they get a lot of their their livelihood from the sea. But both areas, of course, know the 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 temperament of the sea, of water, and how it can hurt. Uh, like people who escaped by boat from Vietnam, many lost their lives. Whoever went by boat to escape knew they were risking their lives. Meanwhile, in the Gulf Coast, rising sea levels, hurricane, put livelihood uh, on the line, um, as well as lives. People die in hurricanes. So I think that the understanding of, I guess, the duality of water, of 
you have to respect the water, but also fear the water. Um, I think that both culture easily goes hand in hand. And I think New Orleans having these characters, New Orleans kind of wants to like bring them more to obvious relief against each other. Um, I just feels it's it's a perfect way to kind of encapsulate both cultures, both ways of being in the world as Louis Louisianian and a Vietnamese person. Um, and I, I feel like the symbolism just kind of came by itself. I feel like writing about Vietnamese in New Orleans is kind of impossible not to talk about the water. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? One author that influenced me a lot, I basically buy all of her books whenever they come out, is Ann Tyler. Uh, my favorite novel of hers, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. Um, kind of similar to my novel. I, I felt like I read this novel at least two or three times when I was writing my own book, just because it kind of touched on the same themes of family and the inner lives of family, of like, I feel like she pictures family as these moving parts that are connected, but they they're all like their individual parts. And I really like that psychological insight that she has. So this is from the novel. And it's about the main character kind of thinking about her own family. It's the mother's point of view. Earl believes now that her family has failed. Neither of her sons is happy. Her daughter can't seem to stay married. There's no one to accept the blame for this but Pearl herself, who raised these children single-handedly and did make mistakes. Oh, a bushel of mistakes. Still, she sometimes has the feeling that it's simply fate and not a matter for blame at all. She feels that everything has been assigned, has been preordained. Everyone must play this role. Certainly, she never intended to foster one of those good son, bad son's arrangements. But what can you do when one son is consistently good and the other consistently bad? What can the sons do even? Don't you see? Cody had cried, and she imagined for an instant that he was inviting her to look at his, at his whole existence, his years of hurt and bafflement often like a child peering over the fence at somebody else's party. She gazes wistfully at other families and wonder what their secret is. They seem so close. It is that they're, is it that they're more religious or stricter or more lenient? Could it be the fact that they participate in sports, read books together, have some common hobby? Recently, she overheard a neighbor woman discussing her plans for Independence Day. Her family was having a picnic. Every member, child or grown-up, was cooking his or her specialty. Those who were too little to cook were in charge of paper plates. Pearl felt such a wave of longing that her knees went weak. And that's it from that. Do you want to say anything else about it? I guess just read it, read all of her work. Like it's truly amazing. Like it's really simple language, but it has, I guess, more meaning beyond the simple language. And she writes her character in a way that's they feel so real, really. Like that I feel like they could be 
the family across the street. And I, I like that simplicity, that that realism. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Uh, so I guess one part of my book that was tricky was trying to incorporate Vin, the mother's boyfriend, into more than, I guess, almost in a way, in a loser. I felt like in a lot of drafts that people read, like the first drafts, like people were asking, like, why is he here? He's kind of, he doesn't have a job. He just lays around in their apartment all day. And sometimes he cleans up, sometimes he prepares food, but nothing else really. So to set things up, Gum is about to leave uh, for the night to go with his friends. And Vin is sitting outside and catches Dung when he's about to leave. It'll be a while until dinner, Vin said. You know how talkative that Yang is. Dung wasn't going to answer, but decided to, feeling that the way they left things on Bourbon Street hanging in the air. They hadn't talked about it since, and it didn't seem like Vin had told his mother. Yeah, Dung said. Where are you going? Friend's house. Is it the Southern kids? Southern boys, he corrected, trying not to raise his voice. You want to know the real story of Vietnam, kid? I don't have time right now. Have to go, said Dung. Well, I tell you this. Look at me. Look. Dung sighed and looked at Vin in the eyes. Everything was a mess, Vin said. War makes everything a mess. And everyone is guilty of doing something bad. No one came out of it not doing anything bad, even all the good guys. It was a mess. That's why I became Catholic. He grabbed onto the small gold cross necklace he wore, a nun at the refugee camp. He said, our pass, we can make up for it. You just have to choose to do it. And do you want to share anything else about why you chose that that you didn't already say? Yeah, I think, again, he was kind of almost a minor character. And I felt like, in a way, he's almost like a father figure, becomes a father figure to the sons because he's dating their mother. And I felt like he could give them kind of an outsider perspective um, on basically war and how they got there and the past, how to deal with the past, um, almost like a fatherly talk. And I feel like since the novel is such, like so concentrated on the three family members, I felt like he was an outsider's voice who can kind of give them insight that they otherwise would not have. So I thought that that was really important to give Vin also to for him to give something to the other characters as well. So he's not as useless as he seems. Where do you write? I write at my desk. I usually like write like facing a window just because like I like seeing what's going on. It's always nice to like if you're like having writer's block to just stare out into the window into the world and see what's happening. Um sometimes you see like people walking by. Um riding bikes, walking your dogs. And I feel like just that movement can kind of get your brain flowing. And I always appreciate that. And then, of course, sunlight. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I feel like my life is so much around writing and reading. 
but I, I do like taking hikes, day trips to like, I guess, places that are close, but not too close, um, and just exploring other cities. Yeah, I like traveling, I guess you could say. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? No one really. I, I mean, like when I was in my MFA program, you're kind of forced to show your work to everyone, but I, I feel like I need to get everything right as much as I can before I show it to anyone. Um, and my first readers are usually, I guess, my agent. How have you dealt with rejection? I think I dealt with rejection by quickly moving on. I, I feel like as a writer, you have to expect rejection. Rejection is like 99% of the job. And that 1% is when you hit that, that, that sweet spot that you get a yes. And I, I think just understanding that rejection is the norm. I think that, that made it easier to move on from rejection and just keep on, keep on writing. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is, I mean, it's out of nowhere, but it's like potato, but like, I, I just feel like it's a fun word to say. Like it's, the way it's punctuated with like the vowels. So you have the po, to, te, to. So each syllable is like this, this burst. And it, like, it brings a smile to my face, like just potato. I, I feel like it is a random word, but I like it. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. If you like today's show with Eric Wynn, author of the novel, Things We Lost to the Water, Check out my interview with Brian Washington, author of the novel Memorial. We talked about giving his characters the capacity to love, not capitalizing on trauma, and moving from short stories to novels. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.